Welcome to Life of the School, Episode 3. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew. I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life in the School podcast, I sit down with a fellow life science teacher from somewhere around the world, and I talk about what it is that they're doing in their classroom, how they got there, and what they hope for the future. In this episode, I sit down with Rebecca Ravgella, who teaches biology and AP biology at Tingsboro High School in Tingsboro, Massachusetts. She's been actively involved in the BioBuilder community in 2011. BioBuilder works to add synthetic biology curriculum to high school and middle school classrooms. Rebecca led a high school team to the iGEM competition in 2012, and she has been a pioneering leader of the BioBuilder Biodesign Club for high school students. She has been awarded the ASBMB Fostering K-12 University Partnership Grant in 2014 and the MGen Excellence in Science Teaching Award in 2013. Rebecca has presented her hands-on teaching methods at conferences and professional workshops, as well as publishing in journals such as the Journal of Chemical Education. Rebecca is a graduate of St. Anselm College with a degree in biology. She earned a doctoral degree in mathematics and science education from the University of Massachusetts Lowell. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello. Happy to be here. Uh, yes. Great. I'm glad that you could sit down during the summer uh, and, and have a conversation. Uh, we are now full in summer. This is now the first week of July. We're just um, we're recording this on July 5th, so just after the 4th of July. And as I had mentioned to you earlier, the um, when I had talked to my friend Antonio, who's in L.A., uh, and we were talking, I was still in school, and he had been out of school for three weeks. So <laughs> this is the the joy of teaching to a fe- talking to a fellow Massachusetts teacher who has the same sort of summer parameters. You know. the The nice thing I joked with him is that in August, when he is back in school, we still have another month off, so we have that <laughs> <laughs> that that time to to plan. So I'm going to jump right into it and ask you uh, what I ask everyone to start. Uh, how did you become a science teacher? What was your pathway into the classroom? So I don't think that my pathway into teaching um, is all that unique. It's pretty traditional. Um, I think that um, I always had kind of an interest in nature and in the life sciences. And I kind of attribute that to um, my dad. Uh, we had a little boat and we would take it out in, um, on the stream behind our house and we'd look for beaver dens and um, pick blueberries. Um, so, uh, and he also had some, uh, uh, some bees as well. So it was a really um, interesting, um, childhood, um, just getting out there, being outdoors, um, and just enjoying nature. Um, when I um, was ready to go to college, I um, was thinking about, you know, what kind of um, program I wanted to pursue. Um, and because I had such a, a wonderful and, you know, wonderful role model as a biology teacher in high school, I thought that's that's what I want to do. I mean, I'm pretty clearly passionate about science um, and I like nature and life sciences. So, um, so that's what I pursued. Um, it wasn't until probably my sophomore, between my sophomore and junior year, um, I joined the theater program at St. Anselm College and 
after one of my performances, um, I told my mom, I said, I'm gonna quit college, I'm dropping out and I'm gonna go to New York City and I'm gonna be an actress. Um, and she said, no, you're not. Um, you're gonna stay in school and you're gonna be, you're gonna get your degree in biology. Um, and you know, and, and of course I did. Um, I, I think that um, around my junior year, I did an internship at the National Institutes of Health um, and realized at that time, um, research was not for me. Um, it was a very lonely process and I needed to be with people. Um, and so after having some conversations with my parents, they said, you clearly know some biology and you really like an audience. So maybe teaching is something that you should consider. Um, and so I graduated with um, my degree in biology, but also a certificate um, and my, my teaching license in seven through 12 life sciences. Um, and then, and that's sort of where the story began. Um, I moved forward and um, earned my my master's degree in curriculum and instruction, um, and then um, wanted to pursue a doctoral program. Um, and I applied to a molecular genetics program at UConn and the math and science education program at UMass Lowell. And I said, whichever one comes in first is the one that I'm going to pursue. Um, and I just sort of, you know, um, left it up in the air. UMass Lowell came in first and so that's what i continue to do well it's 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 a it's a very interesting choice that i mean you did did come at several forks in the road i think yeah. of how different things would have been if you'd gone to to yukon for the molecular yeah or new york or City. to new york you know, to become right? yeah yeah i'd be yeah. on the red carpet right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i i i i do think though that that the, those performances you get to do you get to perform yeah. every day you know yeah. you get to stand up and perform and it's such a an integral part of you know what it is that you do is you are a performer I, I don't think most people appreciate that that what you do is you give a different performance of a you know different show every yeah. day you might have three performances in a day that are the same but you are performing yeah. every day yeah, and it's so unique, and I think that's one of the things that I love about just the instruction component is that you do get to perform, um, and so you want to you want to practice your performance first. And when my students are giving presentations after the first couple, I'll say, "Listen, you guys need to practice. Do you think that I just stand up here and wing it? I don't. Every time I'm driving into school, it's a 25 minute drive. I practice over and over again. What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? Where is where are the pauses? You have to." you have to practice before you can perfect something. Um, and so that's, you know, on that sort of, um, you know, it, it is a really huge component. Um, and if you're not engaging the kids initially, then they're gonna tune out. Yeah, I have my AP kids who ask me if I tried out my jokes earlier in the day on other classes. <laughs> <laughs> and I sometimes have to go, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, of course I do. <laughs> my, my, mine is about two thirds stand up comedy, one third biology when I'm presenting directly to the classroom. Uh, it's a. Uh, uh, and I think they, some of my kids are a little astute at that. They know that, uh, that I, I'm yeah. practicing my jokes on the earlier periods. Uh, I, I, often, I tell my students too, I'm like, you guys, you're not laughing, but I'm taking this on the road. Like yeah. at some point, I, this is going to be a show and you're going to have to pay for it. So, yeah. Well, I tell them I'm entertaining myself. If, whether <laughs> if they want to be entertained, it's really up to them, you know. Uh, exactly. So uh, you you mentioned that you went outside, you were, you know, out in the boat and you're out in nature. So when it comes to things in your, in the classroom, you know, are those your favorite lessons or I know you have a big passion in molecular, you know, what are your favorite things to teach? 
So you would think that like ecology would be the thing that I would be interested in. And it's really not. I mean, I, yes, I like to be outside. I like to be outdoors. I like to see the big stuff. Um, but I also, I, my preference is to, um, I don't know, I think it was Richard Feynman, right? To, talking about, you know, pulling things apart and seeing the beauty at the small level. Um, and I think that is that's where I like to be. Um, so molecular genetics, um, enzymes, enzyme kinetics, cell respiration, photosynthesis, those things that we can't see exactly um, really lend themselves to developing and designing activities and investigations that allow students to really conceptualize them um, on a more hands-on way. Um, so, you know, designing um, activities that let them sort of feel and touch um, as opposed to just being told um, and hearing what they should know and be able to remember, I think is um, allows them to more reliably recall information um, <clears throat> and it makes it more accessible um, and, you know, able to transform that content into something that's uh, that's memorable as well. Yeah. Um, but I certainly didn't learn that way. Um, and it was really hard for me. Um, I was a good student in school, um, but I wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, so while, you know, my peers were reading something, you know, one time I was reading it multiple times and taking notes and sketching it out. So it wasn't until I could visualize something that uh, it became clear to me. Um, and, you know, as we're told in our teacher education programs too, you really don't know what you know until you have to teach it. Um, and so to be able to visualize it and handle it, I think um, that's really where I come from in terms of my approach to teaching. Yeah, when I think of all of the you know lessons that I've I've borrowed or stolen from from you from oh. uh, workshops we've done together, you know I do think of those hands-on activities. The first one that I remember taking um, because I too have done a lot of biobuilder things. I had that first iGem team was trying to teach them three A assembly, and yeah. I was trying like trying to explain how am I going to explain to them how to assemble this plasmid in this really complicated way. And you had this uh, model activity with pipe cleaners and lifesavers and where you had the kids walk through and do that. So, um, you know, my, my vision of your classroom is that you've got like all these bins of candy and pipe cleaners and construction oh, yeah. paper and that sort of stuff. So, <laughs> yep. so how does, you know, designing models like fit into your teaching? Um, where does that come from? Where, where's the background that led you to this, this place? I, it, it was not how I was taught. Um, you know, I think um, initially my, you know, my role model at the elementary school level was my third grade teacher, Miss Corvo. She had a violin. She would play it for us. We would sing. She, you know, had butterflies in her classroom. We talked about the life cycle of butterflies. Um, she was a very hands-on teacher. Um, and I just really connected with that. Um, later on in high school, um, my, uh, my role model was my biology teacher who was completely the opposite. Um, here, read the textbook. Uh, I'll write what you need to know on the board. You study that and I'll give you a test and then you can, you know, tell me what you remember. Um, I was inspired by him because of his knowledge. Um, I was inspired by Ms. Corvo because of her ability to connect um, kids um, with content. Um, so I think it started there. Um, I've been very fortunate in my career to have been able to work with people who are um, are unique um, in how they approach teaching as well. Um, I remember 
Tiffany Testa, who now teaches at a charter school in Massachusetts, um, she was teaching at, um, you know, the first school I was at, and um, it was during final exam period, and she had just finished teaching physical science, and I gave my little paper pencil test to the physical science students, and, um, and a couple of us were out in the hallway, and her final exam was having her students make paper. And we stood out in the hallway and we were like, what is she doing? She's good. There's going to be a mess. Look at all the materials. What are these kids doing? What, how is she going to assess this? And then it was at that moment, I think, that I was like, oh, that's how she's doing it. She's taking the, all of those small things that she did all semester long and she's building uh, on this. Um, and she's allowing students you know, to show, what did I learn? How, how, how can I integrate the, the things that I have learned during the semester into you know, one final product? Um, and so I kind of approach it in that way. Um, and so I have, again, um, been very lucky um, to have interacted um, with many people like Tiffany, um, you know, um, that have inspired me. So. Yeah. And I also think, you know, you mentioned the, the environment. Um, when I think of other things about you, it's that risk taking, you mm -hmm. know, the ability to sort of jump out. Um, you know, I was remembering the conversation we had in, in the summer of 2012. We had done the same workshop in 2011, the BioBuilder, and we learned all of these things. And mm -hmm. personally, it was one of those things. It's funny. This is now the second time I've sat down with somebody I went to workshops and basically said, yeah, I was totally in over my head. Uh, <laughs> because <laughs> cause last summer, last summer I, I was at an immunology conference or immunology workshop and it was so in-depth, um, and the best part of that conversation is that my wife works in immunology, and she had taken the advanced course a couple of years before, and when I came back and I was showing her the things, she at one point said, you know, this is really kind of basic stuff. I was like, you know, <laughs> I, was like, I was like, thanks, Thank, thanks, Sue. <laughs> and now my wife's brilliant and knows this stuff, and it's her field, so it, I'm totally okay with that, but I yeah. sat there then. But back in 2011, we sat down, and I, I don't remember, I don't know if it was the Drew Endy talk. There, were, there was one point I was like, I have no idea what they're talking about. Oh, yeah, about. no, I was too. Yeah. <laughs> but it was great, and it was really that getting uncomfortable and learning. So yeah. we do that in 2011, and we did this workshop, and we get all these ideas, and we were supposed to take them back to our classroom. And I did. I took them back, and I tried them. But um, in 2012, I, I through that whole year of 2011, 2012, I was thinking, gosh, I'd love to start an iGEM, but I don't know. I was, like, nervous. Like, I was afraid to do it. And we come back, and you're like, summer 2012, we're in our rethink. You're like, yep, I did an iGEM team. And I'm like, I'm a coward. Like, why Whoa. wasn't I able to jump in and, and take that risk? Because we are at schools that have, have very different resource levels um, in terms of that. It's not to say that we have an open checkbook or anything like that. Um, and there mm -hmm. certainly are schools that I talk to, uh, friends at other schools, where they certainly yeah. seem to have more in the way of resources but knowing just sort of where we are it to me that was a very bold risk-taking thing to do so is what is it about your environment where you're teaching that allows you to take on these ambitious bold projects I really have no idea. I think um, that, you know, I started teaching in um, a district that was very big. I mean, there were about 1600 students um, and I, it just wasn't a good fit um, for me. I just felt lost. I just didn't feel like I really connected with a lot of the students. I didn't know a lot of the students. Um, and now at Tingsboro, um, it's a really tiny school um, and you basically know everybody um, and everybody knows you. Um, so there's more of a, family kind of relationship um, going on, uh, you know, and that's from the top down. Um, so I feel as though it's a much better fit for me. Um, the, the, the administrators, you know, from superintendent all the way down are so, um, they're just 
they're just so easy to work with. Um, they want you to just pick the programming that you as a professional think is going to be the most um, amazing. Um, they want what's best for kids. Um, and, you know, and they trust that we have that, um, that we have that same, um, that, that same approach. Um, we're also fortunate that, you know, the families in Kingsborough are also very willing to trust us as professionals. Um, you know, I've worked in other schools who are, who have not, families have not been as, um, you know, amenable to the new ideas that we may be put forth. Um, but here, they let us do our job, and I think that's what allows us to do um, such good work. Um, so I, I think that from that standpoint, it's the administration um, that has been so supportive. Um, that summer um, that I was um, thinking about iGEM, um, I forget her name. She was from Indiana, uh, Rebecca... Um, I don't know. She did. She did the high school iGEM in Indiana. Yeah, the um, one who started the. I, I remember talking to her after her talk, and I said, "Do you think I could do it?" She said, "Oh yeah, you can totally do it." And I said, "Are you sure?" And she said, "Oh yeah, you absolutely can." And then I was like, "Okay, well, I probably can." <laughs> I probably, if I had not talked to her, probably would not have pursued it. Um, but who knows? Um, I also had some really amazing students that year who were very independent. Um, you know, the, I say, go clean off this shelf in the back room and make that our iGEM shelf. And, you know, an hour later, everything is organized in, in, in its place. Um, so I, I didn't have to monitor them um, as much as I have had to in subsequent years. Um, so, so I think it was just the stars were aligned. I was, you know, completely energized and inspired um, by the work that Natalie, you know, has done um, with BioBuilder, um, inspired by all of the other amazing BioBuilder teachers. Um, and I thought, okay, well, I, you know, if, if they can do it, I can. Um, so yeah, so we gave it a shot. It was a really, really fun year, but it has not, I have not been able to replicate that um, and, and that sort of feeling. One of the students um, um, from that year as well is um, going to be graduating from Olin College this year, um, and he is studying synthetic biology. So oh. because he, I never had him as a student. I only knew him from the BioBuilder and iGEM team, and you know, and this changed his life's like his career path. Um, so I, yeah, so it, it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, I I don't want to make it sound like my school is not supportive, but I think a much more like that first school that you're in. I mean, yeah. we're we're 1900 yeah. now. Yeah. We were we were closer to 2000, but we've been shrinking, so we're down to 1900. Yeah. Um, and I would just say that it's um, it, it's much more. You know, everything, there's more space and more distance between everybody. Yeah. So yeah. it's not to say that I don't have a good relationship with my principal. Mm -hmm. um, I, I know my superintendent. He's only been there a couple of years. But it's you don't tend to foster the kinds of relationships that as you do in a small district. Right. Um, in a good, small, supported district, that's great. Yeah. I've taught in small districts that did not have that feel um, as well. So, uh, you know, I, I was saying that I think that support that you have, the ability to have those conversations, I feel like I have those, but there's a lot more work that's involved in going mm -hmm. to have those. I also okay. think that um, it's different being a younger teacher in a small school and yeah. a younger teacher in a big school. When yeah. you're at a big school, you've got to sort a lot of things out and you've got to figure a lot of stuff out. And if there's a lot of space between the people, it may be harder to foster those relationships. Right. Yeah, that's so true. And yeah. and even beyond that, it's it, I think it's not as simple as big and small. I think you know I I, I taught in a, my first school I taught in for one year. I was a part time teacher, and it was a very small school. 
Um, yeah. But it, I just was very fortunate in the department I was put in. Um, mm-hmm. I was in a very small group. All of the other teachers were veteran teachers and everybody mentored me. And yeah. unfortunately, at the end of that year, um, my position got eliminated and I ended up going to another school. And it was the antithesis. I went in and the, the culture of that school, I felt very out of place from pretty much the beginning of the year. Um, it, it felt everything in the building felt contentious. It felt like the administration and the teachers were contentious with each other. The teachers and the students were contentious with each other. It was I was very uncomfortable in the fit of that school mm-hmm. the whole year. Um, yeah. And that if I, I if I had been that had been my first year, I would be sitting working in a lab somewhere right now um, because I, I can't imagine having taught in a school like that where you feel yeah. so out of place. Yeah, it's hot. I mean, it's hard in general. My first year teaching, I went home and cried every single night and said, Mom, why didn't you let me go to New York? Why am I here? Um, you might have been crying at rejections. I know. It was really, it was hard. Um, and, you know, and but you, like you said, it's all about, is it a good fit? And, you know, what's happening in terms of, you know, the, the bigger, the bigger picture are, you know, and as a first year teacher, you really need a very good support system. And, you know, maybe it was that, you know, my first 10 years at my other school really sort of, um, allowed me to grow to the point where now that I moved to Tingsboro, okay, I'm all set here. I know, you know, what, I might not know exactly what your procedures are, but I know that there is something. Um, So I felt a little more experienced going in um, as well. So, yeah. Yeah. At this point, it it is a little bit old hat for me. You know, it's, I'm, you know, next year is my, my 17th year at AB. Mm -hmm. It's year 21 teaching, which people shake their head at me every time I say that, Mm -hmm. um, because I, I don't come across as as old as I am, but, um, no, you don't look over 29. <laughs> Same to you, Rebecca. <laughs> but, um, but I, I think the, the big thing is, is that you, you know, you do get a comfort level and you learn the rules, but there's also that trust level. I think when your students walk into your classroom, you're established, like they know what they're coming into. They've heard from, you know, they're the older siblings or their, their friends who are a little bit older. Like there's a certain, there's a certain component of that. And even in a big school that happens because for me, like I'm now a known quantity. I like, I can look down my rosters and see the family names and and know that. And I'm very much a known quantity at this point that people have expectations of me Um, to the point where like in January, like if I don't grow a beard in January, I get a hard time. Like (laughs) (laughs) actually I get a hard time when I shave the beard too, but uh, they like their students who sort of expect even those like little sort of idiosyncratic things about you. um, They, they start to expect little things, you know, and and there's sort of an expectation. And I get a lot of students because I teach the honors biology to freshmen and then I teach the AP, which are junior and senior. I have a lot of kids twice. Right. And so there's a lot of students who get to see me in a few different, uh, you know, a few different iterations. And I've had the, uh, the, the spring, all these kids coming and they're like, yeah, I'm signed up for AP next year. I'm signed up for AP. And it's it, there, you know, I'm not the only AP biology teacher, um, but I'm, and I'm like, yeah, you may or may not have me, but I'm, I'm glad that you're excited uh, uh, about good. that. So uh, we're in summer mode now, uh, which uh, I know it means, as everyone knows, you know, we teach from seven to three and we have our summers off. So um, uh, we get happy all day long. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, for me, summer is like this big time of both reflection and preparation. Um, So uh, what are you you know, reflecting on from the past year or thinking about as you're like looking forward to 2016, 2017? So, um, so this is literally, I've only been out of school for two weeks. Mm-hmm. 
right? And just like you. And so um, in those two weeks, <laughs> I have read two books <laughs> and I have just, I just need to compress, right? Um, like decompress from the year. Like what, what has happened? Um, I just, you know, want to sleep for like, you know, three full days in a row um, because it's so exhausting. And especially after teaching AP Bio, um, it's just, it's very rigorous. Um, but, you know, now that I'm sort of settled into summer and I'm thinking about next year, um, one of the biggest things on my um, on my list, like a front burner issue for me is re uh, re sort of revising the ninth grade um, biology curriculum to match what the new science and technology frameworks are that were adopted in April, I think, of this past year. Yeah. Um, so I have to go back and look at like sequence and like how, what can we move? And some some of the components, some of the topics are m much more um, in depth than they used to be. So, um, so I have to kind of sort that out. So that's a big, that's sort of like the first, is that on your list? Of yeah, well, this is my little journal. I don't know if you can yeah. see my, those are yeah. my journal scratches from the... Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God. Revi yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, so you're in the same, yeah, so that's like the biggest thing. And because we're a small school, nobody even knew that there were new <laughs> standards. So fortunately I pay attention to those things just because of my background. Um, and I'm like, is anybody going to do this? Like, are we like, do we have a plan? Um, and they're like, Oh, you, you, you could maybe do that. Um, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. So yeah, so that's sort of my, my big front burner thing. Um, I'm also looking at, um, sort of co coordinating with the Drake at high school biology teachers as they try to implement BioBuilder um, into their school. So um, doing something um, with them as well. Uh, and then trying to organize the BioBuilder club. Um, I'm sort of on the fence this year, um, whether it's going to continue or not. And I had two students at the end of the year say, you know, we're interested in the club, do, you know, um, what should we do? And I'm like, well, I'll get back to you <laughs> um, because I really need to, you know, think about, um, you know, how, what I want it to look like and the commitment that is necessary. And that I think, uh, you know, uh, across the board has been our, my biggest um, issue, you know, sports are huge at our school. And so that is a priority. Um, and so to kind of compete with the sports, um, it's, it's really hard. And as you know, you know, running the BioBuilder Club and doing what you need to do takes time you can't you can't produce something of any value with one hour after school week it just doesn't happen yeah. um so um so that's those are my top three things um and um yeah and you know hang out outside and read some more books yeah what what books did you read i read forgotten girls and i forget the woman's last name by sarah i forget um and the other one was i just finished um Stephen King's new book, um, End of Watch. Oh. Um, so if you've read like Mr. Mercedes and um, uh, Finders Keepers, it's sort of the third in that yeah. uh, in that series. I'd heard so, something about that coming out. Oh, yeah. it's great. It's not as like creepy as like some of his <laughs> novels, right? The Stand, I think, was the first Stephen King novel I read in college. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy is great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's my favorite. Um, yeah. yeah. I've been in I've been in nonfiction space all still. I'm yeah. I, I've just been on a nonfiction. I, I go back and forth, and I um, I audio book when I run, and I audio book yeah. fiction when I run. But when yeah. I sit down and actually read, I've been in a very nonfiction space. I've been reading um, a book called Proof: The History of okay. Booze. Yeah. 
which is <laughs> I get it. <laughs> which is which is it's 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 excellent. It's a it's a really interesting um it's it's a really interesting they do it's a, there's a ton of science in in yeah. uh, in produ- production of all kinds of alcohol and uh the guy talks a lot about sort of the history and yeah. sort of the myth versus the science and a lot of the new wave science that's going out like people who are making um you know spirits and trying to make spirits uh that are more scientifically measured uh, more scientifically valid, you know, more scientific validity to what people claim. Uh, it's it really it's a very fascinating background. I'm about halfway through, and then um, I, my next book is uh, I want to read Failure, um, which is Stuart Firestein's. Um, he wrote Ignorance is his first book, and now he's written Failure, and it's basically all about how like science is built off of failure. Like if you don't fail, you don't do science. Like you have to try something, and it has to fail, and that's really the process. So I've heard a lot of wonderful things about that. That's the next in my queue. Uh, in my nonfiction, but that's oh, sort of, that's where yeah. I'm going. Um, so, um, yeah, the, just to give a little bit of more background about some of the stuff you were mentioning, I, I, at one point I held up my journal. Um, I've been, I've been journaling this summer and organizing my, my time and I have revised mass standards 2016. And I got a page written all about it with the, the four, uh, marks. So for people who are not in Massachusetts, they're basically a version of the next gen science standards. Um, and they yeah. were just adopted, um, for high school, um, in Massachusetts. And I don't know if you read the memo uh, on this, Rebecca, they're not changing our current, uh, state assessment until right. 2019. Right. But in 2019, the assessment will then reflect these. So we're now in this like weird limbo yeah. space where yeah. we have these old standards, which we've been teaching with really since, you know, 2003. I mean, they revised them in 2006. Yeah, yeah. But they're, they, they pretty much are established. And I, I know inside and out, um, I, I, yeah. I have to make sure my alternative program kids pass the MCAS. So I have like a six week tutorial that I put every kid in my alternative program through and my kids always pass. And I, I totally have the old standards down. I know them backwards. I know them forwards. I know all of the different divisions. I can rattle them off the top of my head. So these are, um, these are very much next gen and we have not had to deal with them, but I am in a very similar headspace to you where it's mm-hmm. like, I have a system to getting our at-risk kids to pass the state standard. And that means that I, in the next three years, have to take that system Mm-hmm. and rebuild it tear it down and rebuild it. yeah I and, and i gotta rebuild it and i have to know these standards as well as i know the old standards and yeah. i know that it didn't happen overnight to build the system that i have although I, i've been running the system for now eight years so it's a it's a pretty well established component but um, i have the same sort of thoughts about you like yeah. what is this going to look like um on the flip side when i was going through i think your tendency to model things is going to be a huge asset because model is mentioned so it many is. times in the standard. The mm-hmm. question will be, how do you get it from us designing the models to help right. our kids learn how to design models? Right. And and that's going to be, I think that's going to be an exciting challenge. Um, but mm-hmm. I think that what you already do is a really nice uh, model of how to model and that it will lend <laughs> itself to some of those, those lessons yeah. as we go forward. So we've already mentioned reading. Um, but so aside from when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? What's your downtime? Um, well, in 2010, um, my mom passed away and, um, I signed my daughter up for Taekwondo. Um, and so she went through that year and it, and only because my mom had sort of mentioned, you know, maybe you should get her into a martial art, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I did. Um, and then it was on mother's day in 2011. Um, and, um, 
they had this like free class. So all the moms who are sitting in the back of the room, come join your kids. And I was like, okay, whatever. So I kicked my shoes off and I went out and I had such a blast. So for the past, you know, however many years I've been training in uh, the martial art of Taekwondo, um, I am currently a second degree black belt um, with a with two refreshers. So in 2018, I should be testing for my third degree black belt. Um, So I think it has, it it consumes the majority of my free time, um, you know, outside of grading and correcting and planning and, you know, buying all of the materials you need to teach. But um, beyond that, it has been um, really wonderful to be able to kind of focus. Um, So I feel as though it really fit nicely with BioBuilder and all of the new things that I, I don't know, it's like, it's like a new phase of my life, you know? So what can I do in my forties that I couldn't do in my thirties? So it's like this new me. Um, And during that process, um, some of, I mean, our testings are pretty vigorous um, and it requires a lot of endurance and stamina. Um, And so I was finding that in the first few testing cycles that I had, I was getting winded and tired and um, so I decided two years ago to start running. Um, I ran track in high school and I hated every minute of it. Um, <laughs> I ran the 1600 and it was awful. I would stop and I'd be like, this is stupid. I'm not doing this anymore. And it was, I was horrible. Um, and so, you know, two years ago, I'm like, I should probably start running. That's going to maybe make me, uh, you know, do a, have a better test and, you know, perform better. And so last, uh, October, November, December, I ran um, uh, a few half marathons. And um, yeah, so I'm hoping at some point um, to, you know, keep running uh, as long as, you know, my knees uh, <laughs> can keep up with me. Um, so yeah, so running in Taekwondo pretty wow. much. Yeah, yeah. I don't do the Taekwondo. I uh, My oldest does um, Tung Soo Do, which is oh. actually not that different, similar Korean based. Um, it is. Oh, wow. Okay. Similar. Yeah. And he is... Uh, he will be eligible to test for his black belt uh, in a year. Um, nice. So he's been doing it for years. Yeah, you mentioned that. I, I mentioned the running. Yeah, I It was around the same time that I had actually just started to run. And I ran in high school. I also ran in college a little bit. And I didn't hate running in high school because I liked being that uh, big fish in a small pond and yeah. uh, being a deluded 17-year-old who thought I, how, <laughs> how great I was uh, until I went to college and realized that I was um, nothing special. Uh, <laughs> there's the, the nice humiliating uh, thing of you are just another guy. And oh, we you, all need that. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it, for me personally, because I, I am a fairly confident, yeah, whatever, I'll dive in and, and try things. It, it probably was a really important thing for my life um so I quit running at 19 and then um I picked it up right around that same time um it was funny because I had gone through this interesting cycle where I after I had um I had gone through college. I started playing soccer again. I had played soccer in high school and I loved it. And I played and then I played through my 30s. And then in my early 30s, I had two fairly significant knee injuries. And I, I really can't I really can't play anymore. I can't change direction. So I have no ACLs. I've torn on pretty much all my meniscus. I, I just can't change direction. Yeah. Uh, and I have braces and stuff like that. It's just not the same. And, you know, I continue to coach and, and I, you know, I basically... Um, I still coach, you know, my youngest, but, uh, I, my, my playing days were over and I was doing a lot of coaching and I was I mean, very different. I was fairly unhealthy. It was one of those cases where I was doing a lot of coaching. I was spending a lot of time in the car driving yeah. most of my weekends. I was driving to coach club games. I was eating way too much fast food. And I just was really fairly inactive. Um, as somebody who had been active most of my life, I had yeah. fall, gone through a cycle about two or three years where I was fairly inactive. 
And then my wife started running. She had never been a runner before, but her and some of her friends decided they were going to run and they were going to sign up for a half marathon and run a half marathon, which like is not a sensible thing to do when you aren't a runner to sign up for a half marathon in six months. And so I saw her doing that. And then you know, I was like, oh, maybe I should go and maybe I should start running and get in shape. And I went back and I, it was probably like, you know, maybe a month or two into it. I come back in, I, yeah, I walk in the door and my wife sees this look on my face and she's like, why did you ever quit running? You love oh. this. And I was like, yeah, I, I kind of do now, but I hated competing in college. Like I hated feeling you would put all your thing, everything you have out there and you were competing against this external reality that you just couldn't compete with. I mean, there was right. nothing about me. Like I, there were times I remember distinctly running and being in like the seventh or eighth heat at, yeah. a, at a big meet. And it's like you could go out and you could run mm -hmm. and win your heat and be like 32nd at the meet because <laughs> these were these giant meets. And I went to right. a Division One program and I, I just wasn't I wasn't a good enough runner to compete at that level. But um, and I had talked to a good friend of mine from high school who is still a fantastic runner. And I said, I couldn't have gone back to this at 32. I couldn't have started running at 32. I couldn't have started running at 28 because I would have been competing with the 18, 19 year old self. I yeah. think these are good lessons though, too. I think um, you probably bring these into your classroom as well. I know I do. I, I'll say, you know, especially for the AP bio students who are so focused on their grade and what their score is going to be. Yeah. And I'll look at them and I'll say, you know, you have to run your own race. You have to stay in your own lane because mm -hmm. if you think about what's going on around you, it's going to get in your head. It's going to get into your mental headspace. Um, and so I say, you know, I, I ran this race over the weekend. And when I go, I know I'm not going to be first. I know I it's I'm just not up, I'm not at that level, but I'm going to run my best and I'm going to try my best. Um okay. so and that's what I think we should teach um all of our kids too. Yeah, to I, I I went in soccer it's control the controllables. Like you can't control yeah. what the referee calls, you really can't control the other team. Just control exactly. what you control and um yeah, I think that it's one of those cases where it definitely a maturity piece. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I know I trash talk with the high school kids about their running. Because yeah. um, <laughs> while I'm not fast, um, I'm, I'm fast enough to trash talk. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I, and, I run, uh, I, and I run at volume now to the point. I mean, I, I just finished my, my sixth marathon uh, back oh in my March. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, I, right now I'm, you know, I'll probably go out and run seven or eight later on today. But yeah. um, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a heavy running cycle right now where I'm running a lot and I'm not, you know, I'm not fast in the grand scheme of things, but you know, I run to the point where I run a volume where I can embarrass the kids who think they run a lot. And I'm like, yeah, you can run fast, but eventually you get can tired. You, can you run 30 miles a week? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, but I'm, I've, it, it's been funny because, you know, it's also that comparison sake. You, you mentioned that I have good friends. Um, you know, last year I remember being on this run and it was, um, friends of mine do a self-supported marathon in between uh, Christmas and New Year's every year. It's members mm -hmm. of my running club. And I didn't run the marathon, but I went out to run with them. And I ended up running, I ended up running 18 on the day, which is a pretty long run, but yeah. I ran 14 and a half or so with them and then broke off and then ran back to my car to get the 18 in. And as I was running, um, I'm running with these guys. And some of these guys are like, these are serious runners. I mean, these are guys who, one of the guys who ran 12 marathons in a year oh, and, wow. you know, another guy's, and this other guy who's in his fifties, he, while we were on that run, he crossed his 3000th mile for the year. And oh, wow. he, he's not the only guy I know who runs more than 3000 miles a year. I have several friends who are like that. So for me, like I could get caught up and compare myself to these guys who do that, but yeah. I don't, I just really sort of worry about what I do. And for me, it's, you know, a lot of that sort of same thing you get out of martial arts. For me, it's meditative 
it's quiet time for myself. It's sort of the, the me time, the time that I'm not doing other things. It's just the time where I focus on the thing that I'm focusing on and I'm yeah. doing this thing. Um, yeah. And, you know, eventually I'm getting to the age where, I, you know, I, I was able to PR in my last marathon. I'm going to get to an age really soon where it doesn't matter how well I train, doesn't matter how good the training cycle, like I'm just going to stop getting faster. Like, you know, I'm getting close to that point. And, um, you know, I thought I'd sort of peaked out that and I've tweaked some things, but I'm getting to that age where eventually once you get into those mid forties, you just stop getting faster. That That's all there is to it. Um, yeah. and becoming okay with who you are and what you are is, is a big, is a big deal. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, uh, before we move on to picks of the week, do you have any questions for me? I don't. You don't. <laughs> a really wonderful experience and um and i am looking forward to seeing where your podcasts go um and yeah thanks for inviting me to chat it's uh, i'm i'm i was uh i was i feel very privileged um that you selected me <laughs> well you know it's it is it's it is hard um to to come up with who to to interview because i know a lot of good teachers so i sort of i sat down i was like well could i do this and I sat down and I just started making a list. And at, at the end of about two minutes, I had like 34 names or something oh, like that geez. written down. <laughs> and they're from all different places. But I, what I want to do is I want to pick people from different aspects of things oh. that I've run into um, and, and different places around the country and mm -hmm. then like not stack them. So like I'm not going to have like BioBuilder Summer. Like I, right. I, could, I could spend a year, you know, just interviewing people we met through BioBuilder. Right. You know, like I get interviewed you and Joanne and Dave yeah. and, you know, yeah. think about Tom who's out in, Ooh, yeah. you know, or, or Arinda who's out in LA. Like there are some uh, amazing teachers all around the country that we've had the good fortune to met to meet and they're all on the list, <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to mix it up. And the same thing with, uh, you know, I interviewed Antonio last week uh, who I met last summer. I was with this tremendous group of teachers from all over the country last, uh, last summer um, in a couple of different different locations, and I could just you know interview them back to back. But what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to you know mix in people from different areas, people I know from around the state that from various uh, you know various experiences and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, hopefully I can I can meet some you know meet up with enough people that it it has that variability um, by talking to people I know from different areas, but also that we can build. And I I personally can already hear some consensus from things that I'm hearing from people. Um, it'll be yeah. interesting to, to see how those kind of, uh, those change as we move forward. Yeah, so. very cool. All right, so on to picks of the week. So Rebecca, what are your picks? I, um, so um, I think it was at one of our BioBuilder workshop things that we did. Um, and I can't remember who gave me this link, um, but it is to the AAAS um, assessments. Um, and so essentially what this, um, what this website does is to, um, uh, identify misconceptions, um, in, in cells, ecology, evolution, and, um, I think heredity as well. Um, and so it outlines and has, um, specific questions that, um, students have, um, or have, have answered across the country. Um, and they analyze it and identify, you know, what percentage of our student population is, you know, is under this misconception. Um, so I use those questions as kind of a way to introduce topics. Um, so remember our DD, the DDMs, right? District determined measures, which I guess we don't have to do anymore. Mm, I don't know. Maybe I'd, um, I'd, hold, off. I'd hold off on making that I, statement yet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. 
Um, but that's what I was doing to sort of monitor the growth of my students. Um, what percentage of my classes, you know, held this misconception and then after a topic or a teaching episode, um, how has that um, uh, conception or misconception been changed. Um, so I definitely think that it is a, a fabulous resource um, and um, people should be um, taking a look at it. Yeah. The the DDMs are uh, a po portion of the, let's say, let's use nice words, the intricate uh, evaluation system. Uh, I yeah. have described it as a system designed with so many pages that no one will ever read them. Um, <laughs> our evaluation system has many different pieces, but one of the components is uh, measuring student growth, which I actually, for all of the rigmarole, I actually yeah. like it that you Me basically too. you pretest yeah. your students and then you you know that back to that idea of making sure you teach science like it is a science where you can evaluate what is their knowledge before you know perform some lessons and see did you move the needle did the students yeah. conceptions change from the beginning to the end and as you said this has got a nice uh, group of already used in large numbers of students um, yeah. what are the percentages nationwide of students who pick various misconceptions yeah. how do your students compare to them yeah, they also separate it through, um, I think they also identify the English language learners as well. So there's sort of that SEI component too, um, yeah. as well. So it's it's pretty it's pretty thorough. It's, there's a lot there. Yeah, we, I definitely use those as well. We, we use them for our uh, our DDMs as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I've, I recommend it. I think I learned the same. I, it must have been whoever that person was because yeah. I because I've, I've been using them for the last few years and telling others about them. So that's I, I, I was thinking back. I was like, was it me? Did I tell her? No, no, I probably that's probably the same workshop that I heard it from. So uh, I don't remember who presented it, but it was great. It probably was that um, that third one that we went, we went to that yeah. unconference. Yes. No, you're right. It was. And I think she was from California. So. Uh, yeah, I forget. I wonder but. if it was Arinda who may have brought that up because she's from well, California. I don't think it was Arinda. But I forget. I, I bet Natalie would know. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, th those. That was a really. I, I still go back into the well of, of things that we picked up from there. So yeah, yeah it's crazy stuff. All right. So my pick, uh, I have, I'm going to put up uh, plantingscience.org. Um, so I came across this about a year and a half ago. And this plantingscience.org website is literally this collection of all of these sort of long-term labs that use plants. So, um, and uh, there are various uh, things that you can do. Some of them are genetics-based. Um, like if you ever did um, the three, two, one genetics uh, with fast plants kit. Oh, right. There's a yeah. there's a version of that um, uh, that's in here. There's some Arabidopsis genetics pieces, um, like the Harry's inheritance one that they okay. also have for fast plants, like counting the number of trichomes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but there's also this really interesting component that I started to read, and I'm looking as we talked about those next gen science standards. I'm looking at there's this whole series of um, celery osmosis labs osmosis and transpiration labs and they run run sort of long term and the kid i think the module says it's like two and a half to three weeks but basically the kids design sort of an osmosis diffusion uh, lab component with it and and i'm just really curious how that will work um the one that i'm specifically interested in is called the celery challenge uh, it's on the bottom part of that but as i said they have genetics in in arabidopsis they also have where does pollen come from uh they have um you know uh, grow the largest corn plant corn competition yeah. um it, it, very interesting ideas and i'm a big you know putting the bio in biology kind of person like i like to see 
yeah. students put their hands on actual living things. Because um, what I found is that when they do that, they don't yeah. know how to keep them alive, which seems like a problem. Like if we're biology teachers and we're life science teachers and as part of life science, like they should be able to work yeah. with living organisms. Yeah. Um, uh, the number of students who the first time I started doing some of those investigations with plants, like uh, I remember we were doing this Arabidopsis germination lab. And like I had three groups who just like totally ignored the step where they had to parafilm the petri dishes, and so they came back and all their stuff was dried out. And they're like, "Huh, they all dried uh, out." I was like, "Huh, plants need water. Hmm. <laughs> who would have thought?" <laughs> like they just they designed their investigations and they just left us in this entirely important step out. So for me, I feel like that's on me as a teacher that you know, a not giving them enough time to put their hands on to you know actual plants and also not letting them design enough investigations to think about those those components and um you know it was good i think they learned a lot they learned that plants need water so um, um <laughs> but uh, i like uh, i've been using i teach an alternative program group and i've been using um longer term investigations uh with them um and sort of arcing a unit where i start a long-term investigation and it has a concept in it and then laying in some of those other pieces early on yeah. so that as we get to sort of the data or the results of those investigations um, or even the inquiry component of it, um, they've already gone through sort of the baseline lab, similar to right. an AP, and then yeah. they can do the follow-up. And um, and they are yeah. a group that um, are really, they're, they're very challenging because they're a very different population every single year. Um, mm -hmm. and, and they're not a group that you can have a canned curriculum for. So I feel like I need to have like like three years worth of curriculum at the start of every year to start because I just don't know where they're going to go um, right. and how they're going to work. So this this has been something that I, I've sort of flagged and I'm starting to go through and I'm, I'm really intrigued about the celery challenge because it looks like there's a lot of content in it and a lot yeah. of places and I'm probably going to try to design a unit that hits as many of these next gen, you know, revised math science standards as possible as I hit those. That's so. great. So, well, um, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me and giving me part of your summer. <laughs> Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. And um, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk tomorrow on a totally unrelated call. <laughs> yep. See you tomorrow. <laughs> See you tomorrow. So let me just say my, uh, yeah, let me just say my, uh, my, my credits. Uh, music on this show uh, comes from X Magicians. Uh, you can subscribe to Life of the School podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Google Play. Um, any other podcatcher that scrapes uh, iTunes, uh, like Overcast, also has the it available. You can get uh, links uh, to all of those as well as my show notes at lifeoftheschool.org. You can also listen to past episodes. Uh, you can also uh, follow us on Facebook. There's a Life of the School uh, Facebook page, which is probably empty right now, but I'll probably put some stuff up there. And then there is also a Life of the School at Life of the School uh, Twitter handle, or you can tweet at me at Mr. Matthew Tweets um, if you'd like to give any feedback. Feedback can also be given available on the website. There's a little feedback form. Uh, I have started to get my first bits of feedback from people uh, a little bit on social media and some emails. I had a former student uh, who actually posted after uh, I interviewed Brian, uh, a student who had both of us uh, posted. <laughs> and I also got some nice feedback from my uh, interview with uh, Antonio on uh, Twitter the other day. So really, it's really nice to hear from people. We're, we're getting to literally, you know, dozens of people. Um, <laughs> But it is, it's been a fun project so far. So, all right. Awesome. So thank you again. And I will talk to everybody soon.